You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, I've got an interview with Jared Case. He is one of the head honchos behind the Nitrate Film Festival over in Rochester, New York. That is taking place this weekend. If you have an opportunity to go to Rochester and check this festival out, I would definitely recommend it. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and listen to Jared Case talk about the world's most dangerous film festival, the Nitrate Picture Show in Rochester, New York. Jared Case, how long have you been working at the Eastman House? I've been at the Eastman House since 2000, so this will be uh, 16 years this year. What's your title these days? It is the Head of Collection Information, Research, and Access in the Moving Image Department. How many years have you been doing the Nitrate Picture Show? This is only the second year for the Nitrate Picture Show, but it's something that's been on our mind for a while. We've always played Nitrate maybe two or three times a year, and we have our own collection of Nitrate film, and we're one of the few places around that can still show Nitrate film. So it's it's always been a part of our nightly program. Um, not on a regular basis, but a semi-regular basis. Two years ago, we realized that this is something that we needed to do for a weekend to bring films from all over the world to the Eastman House on nitrate stock in order to, to show them. Isn't that kind of uh, risky, uh, transporting these things? Uh, it's not as risky as you might think. Uh, there are a lot of regulations that you need to follow in terms of shipping and storing and uh, in projecting as well. So we've got uh, Century projectors up in the booth, and they've been there since 1951 when we, o- when we opened the theater. What you need to do for nitrate film is different from your safety film, which is made out of either acetate or polyester, is you need to have these magazines on the top and the bottom so that the entire film path is enclosed. So if there is, God forbid, a fire, then that's one of the ways that they minimize the damage that it does. We take these magazines off when we're not running nitrate film, and then we put them back on when we're running the nitrate film. And the the film head, the middle of the projector, is all enclosed as well. So no matter where something starts, it'll be contained or at least uh, minimized from a, a danger point of view. I think something that a lot of people don't necessarily realize when they're thinking about film projectors you know, they they can picture a light and they can picture the the film spinning around on the reels and everything, but not necessarily realizing that that light is a flame, a carbon arc flame that burns pretty hot. We're talking in the thousands of degrees Kelvin in order to get that throw from the back of the theater to the screen and still have enough light for it to be illuminated and to have meeting. We, we've all been to these digital projections, especially in 3D, where everything's like super dark and you're trying to figure out what's going on. The light source that they used to use up until the 70s or 80s, really, uh, was carbon arcs. So there's these two sticks of carbon that are essentially burning towards each other. And this was an open flame. And it's not like the xenon bulbs that we have now. It was already inherently dangerous. Look, the, the nitrate film is combustible. It's very close in makeup to gun cotton. So when you get it hot, there's fire. And it produces its own oxygen, this nitrate film, as it burns. So you're not going to put it out. You just have to wait until it's done. 
So having that open flame near the combustible film was a bad idea. They built a shield in between where the flame was and the film was. It was still dangerous to have an open flame near the the film. So they went with the xenon bulbs, which are enclosed in a bulb. So it's not an open flame, but it does have that arc producing that light at 5,000, 6,000 degrees Kelvin, which is imitating sunlight to the best of its ability and giving you enough light to project through the film and throw it hundreds of feet away onto the screen. I recently saw a documentary called Dying of the Light, and at one point they light up some nitrate film, and it's not as fast as flash paper, but it's pretty darn close. (laughs) There's videos you can see on YouTube. I actually saw some videos of an archive. They were building a new nitrate vault, and they wanted to test the strength and durability of some of the shelving that they were going to put into the vault. So what they did was they put in a can or two of nitrate film, which was already decomposing. They weren't losing any image to time by burning this nitrate. They pulled out a wick, essentially just reeled out the film for uh, 12 feet or something. And the, the way you store nitrate, you can only have 2,000 feet within one shelving unit. So it was, it's very compact. And they lit this nitrate wick, it zipped right up into the can, And it took about two seconds for this flame to just start shooting out of the can. It was like jet fuel. And it made the same kind of noise. And so as this film was burning inside the can, and it only had this one outlet, there was so much power and heat that was burning the ground as it came out. So it's, it's not something that you want to mess with. But that's why we take all the precautions. The thing is, those situations are so rare especially nowadays when most people aren't using nitrate film. But if you take care of the film and it's healthy film and you have well-maintained projectors and you're following the procedures, what we do is we pre-screen the films to make sure there's not going to be any problems during the weekend. So all of these films need to come to Rochester, New York. We look at them first to make sure that they're going to go through, that it's a good print, it's not too scratched. And we look at all of them before we put the, the program together. We know that these films are not going to cause a problem with our projectors, and we maintain these projectors. There's still still the same projectors that we use for the program six, seven days a week. So these projectors are getting used. They're well-oiled. They're maintained. We're very confident in what we're doing. So these aren't just prints that you guys have in your vast archive of materials. That's right, yeah. So last year we had films from the the major American archives. There's five of us, the George Eastman Museum, the UCLA Film and Television Archive, and the Academy Film Archive, which are both out in Los Angeles. The Library of Congress, which is based in Washington, D.C., but they have their vaults in Virginia. And then the Museum of Modern Art, which was the first private film archive, and, and they have a lot of nitrate film to share as well. But we also went outside of the United States, and we got films from the British Film Institute. We got films from the National Library of Norway. We're looking as as far and wide as we can to bring in a a great breadth of of film history uh, to bring to the festival. So we, we contacted all those people, and we contacted more people. And as I realized that this is becoming a year-round job to program this festival, I already have people on my list for next year that I'm going to start contacting in May because 
again, we need to have these films here and make sure that they run. So we're realizing this is sort of a year-round thing. Once you end this one, then you have to start the next one. I know last year you weren't able to really divulge the films that you were showing before you showed them. Is that kind of the same thing for this year's festival as well? Yeah, that's kind of the point of what we're doing is that if I were to tell you last year that we were going to show Casablanca in the in the first show, all we would talk about is Casablanca because that's an incredible opportunity to watch it on nitrate film. And trust me, it was one of the hits of the festival. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous print. But what we want to do is talk about the screening of the original artifact, that nitrate print, which was created back when it was distributed is the museum piece that we want to show. And that's the point that it's difficult to maintain these nitrate films, to conserve them, as we say, in the proper temperature and humidity. It's difficult to transport them. It's difficult to exhibit them. And so we want to talk about that in in reference to the work that the museums and archives are doing. That's the important thing about the festival, is that it highlights all of this work that doesn't get shown. We see the preservations, we see what's come from saving these films, but that original experience of seeing the films themselves, breathing the same air as a a print of uh, Casablanca that was released 75 years ago, being able to touch films that were made over 100 years ago, All of this experience of the conservation and the saving of the films and the original cinema experience is what we're calling it. That's the point that we want to talk about rather than the film titles themselves. It's funny. When you talk about nitrate film, my mind doesn't go to the era of Casablanca. My mind goes to the silence. Mathematically, it kind of makes sense because we had you know, however many decades of silent films, and we only had, what, 20 years of sound film uh, before the introduction of safety film in, what, 1950 was that? Yeah, 51. All your numbers work out pretty well. There was 35 years of silence on, 30 to 35 years of silence on nitrate, and then we got sound coming in in the mid-20s up till 1930, and then we had 20 years of black and white and technicolor film before everything went over to safety in 1951. So if you're thinking that it's just going to be you know, Broken Blossoms or whatever D.W. Griffith comes into your head, it's not necessarily the case. You will have the ability to see color films, to see movies with sound, because I know some people still, even in this age, they have something against silent films. They want the full talky experience, which to me is like, it's just like you're talking about the art museum going down a different branch of the museum, going down a different hallway. Their art just the same. It's just a little different. It's great to to talk to other people like this because that hadn't even crossed my mind. You know, working in an archive day to day, I don't think about the perception of nitrate as silent. The dates, you know, just come naturally to me. So it's, it makes sense that, you know, knowing uh, that we're both big fans of film noir, that most of that stuff came out on nitrate films, the ones that we always go to first. Thinking about the perception of nitrate, I guess it, the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of danger, the idea that it's uh, combustible and, and you're taking a chance by projecting it. Yeah, if that next uh, perception is that it's silent film. That, that's completely wrong. I mean, some of the most 
famous iconic films of all time were shot on nitrate uh, you know you, you go to an any afi list and you're talking about uh quotes uh frankly my dear i don't give a damn gone with the wind that was nitrate uh somewhere over the rainbow and was Vaz, that was nitrate casablanca citizen kane was nitrate the magnificent ambersons was nitrate and the clarity of this nitrate film is is stunning when you actually see it up close. Another reason that we don't reveal the titles beforehand is because you might take it for granted. Even people that have access to 35mm projection on a regular basis, if I told you we're going to show you Hitchcock's 1934, The Man Who Knew Too Much, was, oh, oh, I've seen that one. Have you seen it on nitrate? Uh, I saw a 35-millimeter print at the Cinematheque last year. It's like, no, have you seen it on nitrate? <laughs> because it really is uh, an incredible difference from a good nitrate print to any safety print that you see. Because safety prints are always copied from the nitrate print. So as you make a copy of a copy of a copy, anyone of our age that's you know dealt with copy machines many times and you get that if you're at school and you get this copy that the teachers used for several years you can see the the definition is gone the clarity the crispness it's it's all getting muddied and that's exactly the same thing that happens with film it's still a, a visual process where you're copying from one to the next to the next and you have to go from positive to negative to positive you're losing definition in the highlights and the low lights as you make more copies these are as i said the original prints that were made f- usually from the original negatives that were shot and made for distribution. So especially I find a big difference with the black and white films. There's a depth to the image that you don't get with the safety film. And that's probably has something to do with the silver content from uh, that era. They were using a lot more silver and they used less and less as they went on, not only through the nitrate era, but into the safety era. You try to make things cheaper. So if silver is expensive, you try to make it with less silver. But the the depth of field in these black and white films is incredible. There was a film, I'm not going to tell you what title it is. We didn't use it last year, but it was something I desperately wanted to use because it was a film I had seen before. I had seen it on TV. I saw a DCP of it at another festival. And it was incredible, an Oscar-winning film that had this incredible reputation. And I was always kind of, meh, okay, it was fine. I saw it on Nitrate Film. And the scope that the director was going for with this small story in this large landscape came home to me in a way that I had never seen before on this big screen with the the depth of field of this black and white image. And suddenly there was emotion. There was an emotional connection for me now. It's like these, these small people in this large world and what they're trying to do, I get it. I get it. So there, there's definitely a difference for a lot of people watching something on nitrate versus watching something on safety, let alone on TV or on your phone. It's such a rarity these days to even see something on film, and much less the nitrate film version of it. Yeah, what we're experiencing as we're doing our regular program is that the Hollywood studios are just as happy to let you play a Blu-ray and take their money instead of sending the film out. 
So it's it's becoming more and more difficult to show 35, and, and we're trying it as hard as we can. We deal with the other archives here in the United States, and we have a good working relationship with them. They're willing to send out the 35 prints, but they don't have everything. Uh, even with the, the five archives working together, it's it's difficult to create a program of 300 titles a year and have them all on 35. What are some of the things that you managed to get from the archives outside of the U.S. last year for the festival? You think you know something's coming from a foreign archive, it's, it's going to be a foreign film. It's not always the case. Sometimes you can get an American film from a foreign archive because they collected it. It happened to show up into their vaults. From the BFI last year, we got uh, a French film called The Damned or Les Maudits. It's a René Clément film from 1947. It's about Nazis that were fleeing Germany after the war. They were trying to make it down to South America, and it, it didn't go very well for them. But it was a very psychological drama. It was They were escaping in a submarine, and so they were all trapped, and they had different views on things, and some of them were more loyal than others. Some just wanted their old life back. Uh, so a very psychological drama that uh, unfolded on their way from Europe to South America. From the National Library of Norway, we got these two great shorts. They were actually cigarette commercials uh, that were shown in theaters, but they were these uh, sort of Fischinger-esque stop-motion animation. Not quite as abstract, but you know, it was they were set to um, classical music or at least instrumental music. All they were doing was trying to get you to buy cigarettes, but it was like these choreographed things with uh, the cigarettes and how they would move around, sort of march in a Busby Berkeley kind of a way. But they were both in Agfa color, which was something that they used in Europe more often, and it was. A competitor for Technicolor, which sort of had a monopoly here in the United States. But these were 1937, so these were almost 80 years old. We showed them the first thing. They, they opened up the festival. And actually, we did Casablanca, and then they, they were, we showed them right before The Man Who Knew Too Much. So it was sort of black and white color, black and white. I can't imagine what The Man Who Knew Too Much would have looked like on the big screen in the nitrate. I own on DVD a bunch of the, the Hitchcock films, most of them, I think. But that's one that I really come back to. I, I think it's so much superior to the 50s version. And I see a lot of later films in this. I love seeing those connections, but it's it's really a good film, and it's snappy. It's like 75 minutes long. Peter Laurie's great. It's I think it's much more important than people realize in the history of British cinema. And then you also showed some just magnificent color films as well. I, I seem to remember, did you do uh, Black Narcissus? We did do Black Narcissus, yeah. I had actually had the opportunity to see that particular print about 10 years earlier. As I said, we do play Nitrate on a semi-regular basis. So that was the print that we got from the Academy of Film Archive. And it was a favorite of the theater manager that was working at that time. So she sort of really pushed to get the nitrate print there. So I had remembered that, and I remembered how gorgeous it looked. But that's another one of those films that, you know, until I saw the nitrate, I, I didn't really connect with it. As I had to realize that for me, it's really like a horror film. It's like almost a haunted house where these nuns are getting uh, affected by the isolation 
that they find themselves in in uh, India and how they all are affected in different ways. And once I saw that and Powell and Pressburger's imagery, especially how they played with the shadows and the stark contrast to the bright colors, especially as the, the one nun, you know, sheds her habit and just paints herself up. It's, it's, really really striking it that was one of the big hits of the festival definitely we had that on saturday night along with a lesser known film called portrait of jenny another joseph cotton and this was uh, a david oselsnick production which is kind of a standard weird romance that has sort of fantasy elements to it so joseph cotton is this artist this painter who's not very successful until he keeps on meeting the same woman, but she's aging much faster than he is. And what ends up happening is that she's sort of traveling through time to this point where they're both supposed to meet at the end of the film. And the original presentation, when it was shown in New York City, had something called Magnoscope, which essentially was just a zoom lens on the projector, which made everything get bigger and sort of more important. But what we did was we simulated that changeover in the last reel by changing the masking, changing the aperture plate and the lens on the projector. So it went from 133 or 137, which is academy ratio, to 185. And we timed it with the opening of the curtain so everything is getting bigger at the same time. And this last reel is entirely color. Not the technicolor that you would think of, but it starts out with this green tint. So it's this big storm on the ocean, and they're you know struggling to meet each other. And the first thing you see on this last reel is a, a flash of lightning as it's coming down through the middle of the screen. And the thunder is just booming in your ears, and the screen gets larger. And there's this seafoam green tint to everything as they're going through their actions. Once after after the much of the action has happened, the the green tint goes away, and it has this warm uh, sort of rose tone to it. So the tint covers everything that's white. The tone replaces everything that's black. So you get these dark areas, but they have this warm rose tint to it. And then the last shot of the film is Technicolor, and all you see is sort of this slow push in on the portrait that Joseph Cotton paints of this woman that he's met and fallen in love with and is doomed to never spend his life with. And so that that presentation just floored everyone. And even though it's a lesser known film, it it really brought to the fore sort of the, the ability that we have to recreate these historic uh, exhibitions that happened that was 65 years ago. That's amazing. And that's the thing, too, is I would have never heard of that film. And so that you're showing it at this festival, it's just amazing that you're bringing back something that isn't one of the the hits, you know, the greatest hits kind of thing. So that's great that you're not just showing the typical things that people might expect to see. You know, you're not hitting Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz. And yes, you would get people to show up for those, I'm sure. But showing something like Portrait of Jenny, great. You know, the, that's the kind of thing that I want to see. Show me something I've never seen before. Right, yeah. And that's another reason not to tell you the titles, because it, 
if you see, you know, Casablanca and Man Who too much, you're like, okay, like half the movies are things that I've seen and I know that I want to see. These other half I've never heard of. Do I really want to spend the money to go and see these films? The thing is, we ask you to trust us a little bit. You know, it's not just, hey, we found some nitrate, let's show it. We're putting together a program. There was an unintentional theme last year of sort of this doomed love between Black Narcissus and uh, Portrait of Jenny, Leave Her to Heaven, where there's sort of these just messed up romances. And it, it didn't happen on purpose, but as we were looking to find films that are on nitrate that are good films that may or may not be the films that you have heard of, that's sort of how it came together. But it's we you need to trust that we have a certain sense of aesthetics that we can, you know, put together a, an interesting program that's not just the greatest hits, but that explores the the breadth of everything that was being made during the nitrate era. And you're not just showing film to the festival. You also have uh, discussions and what, like workshops, those kind of things. What are some of those or what were they like at the last one? And if you can reveal what they'll be at the next one, please let me know. The George Eastman Museum is a unique place. It's got all sorts of challenges in trying to describe to people exactly what we are and fit in everything in some sort of an elevator pitch. We're so many things. We're a photography museum. We have the world's best collection of imaging technology. We're a historic house and a historic landmark. We're this world-class film archive. We're a, a great cinematheque, all in the same building. All that to say that it does create opportunities. So we have these workshops that happen on a regular basis where we have photo historic process historians that teach these workshops about different photographic processes that were used during the 19th and early 20th centuries that you just don't do anymore. So what we had them do at the first Nitrate Picture Show was to have a brief workshop where they actually created nitrate film in front of your eyes. They make the solution ahead of time, and it's it's all liquid. They have to I see them walking around for like a week ahead of time. They're always shaking these jars to make sure it's always emulsified. But they cast it on a glass table. They slit it, and then they perforate it, showing you on a much smaller scale how this film was actually created. They can make... You know, they let it dry, they show you how to create the emulsion, and they mix that up, and they put it on the stock. So you actually have – it's not consistent, but this is uh, the way that nitrate was made 100 years ago. So we'll be doing that again this year, and as of this taping, I think those are almost all sold out, maybe two slots left. The thing that we've added this year is a tour of our nitrate vaults, which are – situated outside of the city limits right now. We did have a nitrate fire back in 1978. At that point in the time, the city was like, hey, you think maybe you want to have a different place to keep those films? And that opened in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s. So this is something that we don't normally offer. It's something that's offered to members usually. But since we have so many people coming from out of town that are not necessarily going to become members, we've convinced the administration to allow us to give this opportunity to people that are coming to the festival so they can come see where the films are stored. And that's the first thing that you do. You have to 
collect the films and store them at the right temperature and humidity so that they will be viable for decades on, whether you do it using them for projection or preservation. We do have two uh, speakers that are coming to us from Europe. One of them is David Francis, who was instrumental not only in getting the new campus for the Library of Congress up and running in Virginia, but he also started the uh, film program, the, the film archive at Indiana University. He moved back home to Kent, England, and he's starting up the Museum of the Moving Image in Kent. And this poor guy is... is done work in the archive uh, field for just decades, and he'll be here uh, talking about his experiences with nitrate, as well as uh, a German named Wolfgang Klaue, who was uh, the president of FIAF, which is the International Federation of Film Archives. And uh, he's been in the field for decades as well, both in East Germany and in the reunited Germany for the last 25 years. So, we have a wealth of knowledge of uh, people that are coming to give talks. The last thing that we're doing, uh, another new thing this year, is something we're calling the nitrate touch. That is where we have benches, inspection benches set up in a public area. And we've identified 10 or 12 films or 10 or, 10 or 12 reels that we're going to bring out. And we're going to have uh, either students of the Selznick School or staff members from the Moving Image Department sitting there and rolling through these films and have people uh, have that tactile experience. You're going to be able to get close to the film. Uh, if you, you put on a glove, then we'll let you touch the film, at least the outside of the film, the edges. And you know you can feel what the film feels like instead of having that distance where – it's behind you and the image is in front of you. You're sort of in between having that experience where, again, if this is a, a, an original silent print or if it's maybe Martin Scorsese's personal print of something, there's that tactile energy that comes from being that close and, and being able to touch essentially what is history. It's, it's an artifact that's held at a museum and is being used for exhibition. So that was something that we wanted to do to get people even closer to the museum experience. How are you doing the ticketing for this thing? Is this just one big pass that you buy for everything, or can you buy tickets for particular events, or how is that? We are selling uh, passes for the entire weekend right now. And those are on sale at the Eastman.org website. So if you go to Eastman.org slash NPS, which is Nitrate Picture Show, uh, you can buy your passes right there. Uh, once we do reveal the schedule, which is going to be on the first day of the show, we'll have individual screening tickets available. And those will be available throughout the weekend. So if there was something on Sunday that you wanted to see, you could buy it on Friday and make sure you get your seats for that. We have sold way more tickets this year than last year. Uh, I'm not sure how close we're going to get to selling out. But uh, just over the weekend, there's been another big push. So we're we're getting low. And I'm, I'm actually getting a little concerned. I'm going to need to order more bags or more treats for everybody because I was counting on a specific number. And uh, I'm hoping that we don't go over that and somebody's going to be disappointed. But uh, generally, the passes uh, get you into all the screenings, all the talks, uh, the nitrate touch over the weekend, and then the the tours and the workshops. Those are an extra cost. And as I said, I think those are mostly sold out right now. So the the film festival is, is the, main, the main draw, and those are still on sale. 
I was really glad to see that you had David Boardwell there last year. Oh my God. I met David for the first time last year. He's incredible. Just an incredible, incredible guy. He's actually going to be here, uh, not for the festival this year. He's going to, he's in New York with Kristen for like three months or something. He's going to come up and give a lecture at the end of May at the George Eastman Museum. And I'm so happy that I'm going to be able to spend time with him again because I just, I walk away so much smarter. Yeah, I'm trying to get him for the podcast. I want him to come on and talk about any Japanese movie that he wants <laughs> to talk about. Well, I'll I'll, I'll uh, let him know. Well, I'm glad to hear that he lives up to his reputation. Oh, yeah, definitely. For me, definitely. So I'm glad to hear that the festival sales are going well. That is terrific. Uh, this year, we're up against the TCM Film Festival. There is some crossover segment there. Not necessarily a lot, but, you know, the... The fact that we're doing so well up against it, I can't wait to see what happens next year when we're on two different weekends and people might be able to come to both of them. Uh, it's it's definitely going to be a sellout next year. And I love the way that you're billing the festival this year. Aren't you calling it like the, the world's most dangerous film festival? I think that came from a review, actually, from last year. So I don't think that's something that we said. The, the t-shirts this year say the original c- cinema experience. So we're celebrating the original cinema experience. But World's Most Dangerous Film Festival is probably not far from the truth. And then I, I've seen at least uh, one picture where it's film is cool and nitrate is hot. Yes. Good stuff. <laughs> that's that's something that we uh, came up with for this festival. And uh, it's catchy and yet it's it's pithy. It 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 draws more attention. And uh, I, I'm really thankful to the staff at the George Eastman Museum uh, for all the work that they've been putting into this festival, not just in the department, but outside as well. And I'm glad to see that you have so many good trained projectionists on staff as well. The sort of overall thing, my, my pitch has always been with this festival, because you need to have something to talk about when you're not talking about the film titles. This is something that we've been meant to do. Uh, since we opened in 1949, we've had a film collection. So James Card was the first director of the film department at that point in time, as it was called. And he brought his own collection. The story is that his grandmother gave him his first projector when he was five years old. And this was one of those toy 35-millimeter projectors where you had this you know, short little, probably silent thing that was amusing to children. And you would lace it up and run it through and rewind it. But from that time, when he was five years old, he was fascinated by films. So he started collecting. He actually gave up his tuition money. He was studying in Germany in the late 30s. He, he gave up his tuition so that he could buy a print of Caligari. And he brought that back home. He ended up uh, working at Kodak for a little bit. So he was in Rochester at the time that they were having the idea for the museum. And so he ended up working at the George Eastman Museum, brought his collection with him. And they knew at that point in time, even though it was at the end of the Nitrate Arrow, we need to have this exhibition space where we can show these films, where a museum, museums exhibit their works. One of George Eastman's relatives, uh, George and Ellen Dryden, they gave money to the George Eastman Museum to build the Dryden Theater. And that opened in 1951. You might remember that's the same date when everything turned over to safety film. So from the beginning, from when we started showing films, it was nitrate. 
And we've maintained that ability to do that throughout the 65 years that the theater has been around. In 1952, again, we knew that we needed to conserve these films to keep them viable for however long we needed to copy them to the new medium or to make them uh, exhibitable in their own form. So we have the first privately owned state-of-the-art nitrate film vaults. And those were on the campus uh, with the George Eastman Museum, and those opened in 1952. So again, over 60 years ago, we had the idea that we needed to keep these for posterity, and we needed to lengthen their life as long as possible by keeping them cool and dry. As I said, this is the first privately owned one. Library of Congress already had their own vaults at that point in time, but places like Museum of Modern Art they had nitrate film. They didn't have a place to keep it. They sent it to us to keep in our vaults because they knew that it was going to extend the length of the film. And this is also the 20th anniversary of the L. Jeffrey Selznick School of Film Preservation. And what this is is a, an intense 10-month certificate program that's grown into the possibility of a two-year program, uh, a master's at the University of Rochester. So you can choose the one-year or the two-year program. But for 20 years, we've been passing down the knowledge. And this goes back to what you were saying about the projectionists. You know, Some of those projectionists are students of the Selznick School. We've passed down the knowledge and the know-how of how not how to not only conserve the film, preserve the film, inspect the film, repair the film so that it can be projected and how to use these projectors, how to handle the nitrate film specifically. So from the beginning with the collection and exhibition of the film, the conservation of the film, and the passing down of this knowledge from one generation to the next, it all seemed to come together back when we were thinking about this in 2014. This is something that we need to do. This is something that we've been either purposefully or not been gearing towards for our entire history. Well, I think even one of the first times that you and I ever had a conversation, you were talking about doing a festival like this. So I was so glad when it came to fruition last year. And I'm so excited to hopefully attend in 2017. And I'm glad that 2016 seems like it is going to be a banner year for you. I think I was talking to a lot of people about the <laughs> Nitrate Festival at that point in time. My original idea, of course, we were talking about this at NoirCon, was uh, a Nitrate Noir Festival. And we did have Lever to Heaven last year. And I know of several other noir prints that uh, are capable of being shown. Let me just put it that way. Sometimes we need to pry them out of people's hands. Other times it's it's a matter of getting them in to um, the festival. But uh, there, I think there will be noir representation at festivals for a long time. Are there any other guests that you want to highlight? Any authors or anything? Something we have had discussions about in the past is how genuine is this in terms of recreating the nitrate experience? Because back in the 30s and 40s, they were using carbon arc lighting to maintain this. And as as I said, that was uh, an open flame. So it was it had that sort of flicker to it, which added, you know, along with the projection of the film, added a, a little bit of a, a movement to the image. Uh, well, we have one of our projectionists on, on staff who's been projecting for nearly 50 years. Um, he's going to be doing a, a talk about carbon arcs and how they started, why they 
stopped using them, how they're different from the xenon bulbs that we're using now, the color temperature. And uh, so that's going to be on Saturday afternoon as well. And that's something that we are taking into account. These are the artifacts that were collected into the collection. But we also try to maintain, of course, that exhibition. So you're seeing it in a theater as opposed to in a small screening room. You're seeing it with other people. It's live. It's immediate. You can't pause it. You're interacting with the other people in the audience as well uh, while you're watching the film. It's, it's, it's something that you can't ignore. It starts at a particular time, and you have to be there. So it's that cinema experience. It's seeing things in the theater with other people as close as we can make it to the, the way it was originally done. So this, the Carbon Arc Lecture is talking a little bit about how that's something that we just can't do anymore. It's uh, dirty. It's sooty. It's, um, those carbon arcs burn every reel. So it's, it's something that's consumable. Uh, you're not able to recreate that or keep it going for as long as you need to for the entire film. And so Daryl will be talking about the old way that they projected films and and how we're doing it different now. I hear that Rochester is a wonderful town. I haven't lived really anywhere else long enough to say with any authority that it compares well to other places. But, you know, the, the winters can be rough, uh, but we had just absolutely gorgeous weather last year uh and in late april and you know all the flowers are just starting to come up and it's it's definitely spring this time of year and with all the gardens that the george eastman museum maintains historically accurate by the century so the same gardens that george eastman had 100 years ago that's what we'll have this year um it it really was just a great experience so i'm hoping to replicate that that's something i don't have control over unfortunately well, Jared, it sounds like it's going to be one heck of a time. I think it is going to be. I'm, I'm not going to be able to breathe or think during the whole thing, but the, the sense of accomplishment and, and the reward of seeing people's reaction to the, the weekend last year is, is totally worth it. And uh, the hours that we spend on it you know, take us away from our families and stuff, but it's, some, it's such a unique opportunity. You know, I'm, I'm the executive director of a festival that nobody else in the world can do, and it's it's something that I cherish and and I hope goes on for a long, long time. And I hope that as many people as possible can come experience at least once. Thoughts on the night, her feelings dropped inside the circuitry. With silver night 